Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast, episode 908. This is my interview with Jeff Colvin. It's a repeat, but it's a good one, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Jeff Colvin, welcome to the Hidden Why. How are you going? Very well, Lee. How about you? Mate, I'm fantastic. Thank you. Um, ready and into my day doing a couple of interviews today. So excited to have you on the show, and I appreciate you accepting my invitation. Uh, it was my great pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Jeff, um, I've given you a little bit of a pre-introduction in the pre-recording of this interview, but for the audience, um, put that into context for us. What, what are you all about? What do you do? What gets you excited? Well, uh, first of all, uh, my day job is that I've worked at Fortune Magazine, a business magazine here in the U.S., for virtually my entire career. I, I wow. write about big trends that I think will affect lots of people and uh, have enjoyed it every step of the way. Um, I also do a lot of uh, speaking uh, at conferences around the world, and I have written some books which have certain themes in common as well. They're all about human performance one way or another, um, where it comes from and uh, where it's going in the future. And I, Because these are things I feel passionately about. And so I'm, I'm lucky to get to be able to do these things that I actually love doing. Wow, excellent. Um, any highlights of your career? Anything that you've really has really stood out to you? <laughs> well, it's a it's a good question, and it's hard to answer. I mean, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of different things uh, in my career, and so uh, that's something that I really appreciate. I mean, I you know, I've worked yeah. at Fortune now for what I thirty nine years or something, which is not a story you hear very often anymore. Not anymore, but I've done, no. <laughs> Not anymore. You know, it used to be common to spend an entire career at one place, but not anymore. Uh, but I've done so many different things uh, at Fortune over the years that uh, it, it's really been uh, wonderful. I, I have tremendously enjoyed making magazines uh, in all their many parts, plus writing the things that I get to write. Uh, you know, it's, it's just been terrific. Topics of interest, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I suppose things have changed now, um, but for, for someone listening out there, how would, we, how would you get the opportunity to, to walk into such a position, to you know, write in fields that you're interested about and, and being part of a publication that has, has such good reach to, so you can share that message? Yeah. Uh, you know, it really is an extension of everything I've been interested in, going back to childhood, in fact. Mm. And I, I find that when people look back on their careers, or they don't have to be near the end, but anytime they've, you know, they're, they're in a career and they think, how did I end up here? Yeah. Uh, it usually ends up with lots of accidents, lots of chance along the way, and yet it almost always reflects what their interests have been for most of their life. They somehow, one way or another, end up doing these things that reflect their deep interests, and that's the case with me. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, in college, I majored in economics. I was always interested in economics and business, but I also was interested in uh, literature and writing, and in fact, uh, probably got more attention for that in high school and college than uh, for anything else. And so, uh, you know, the various accidents along the way all sort of tended in the same direction. Yeah, uh, right. You know, I, I got jobs working uh, in that involved writing and that involved business and economics. And so it was fairly natural that I would end up uh, at Fortune magazine. Okay. 
Cool. And I, I think I, I hear that a lot. You know, if you look back upon your past, you can see and, and connect those dots. Um, yes. But what I fear uh, for a lot of, for myself and for a lot of people is that uh, getting into the traps of um, conformity and actually not pursuing your interests because you think you yes. have to live a certain life and be a certain way. And obviously there yes. are some truths to that. You know, we have to have an income so we can have a certain level of lifestyle and the roof over our head and stuff. Um, is, is that something that you see as, is, is evident yeah. in society? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a terrific point and I can't tell you that I was any wiser than anybody else when I was, uh, younger, uh, looking back, I, I really do wish that I had tried more things. Okay. Um, I suspect that you, in doing your interviews, hear that message quite a bit. I, I wouldn't be surprised anyway. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it, it's, it's, it's just what you said. Um, you do feel that you're under more restrictions than you really are. Uh, you feel more constrained than you really are. And so you don't take the risks, try the new things that in retrospect, you wish you had. So it's, it's not uh, something that's really changed. I think it's been the case um, in the past and, and still is evident now um, that people sort of, yeah. I guess, you know, get distracted by the external measures and expectations rather than sort of aligning themselves with what their internal desires are. Right. Um, certainly a, a yeah, condition that's um, relevant to all of us and uh, certainly something that we have to battle. So anyway, look, uh, I... I just thought we'd go there because it's uh, of interest to me and, and the audience as well. I really want yeah. to discuss your books. You've got um, a few books out. How many books have you published now? Well, the two that you that, that I think we're going to talk about, uh, Talent is Overrated and Humans Are Underrated, are certainly the biggest ones. I, I've uh, also published one on managing. It's a real business book on managing in difficult times that was prompted by the financial crisis and the big recession of 2008 and 2009, yep. but applies to difficult times anyway, which uh, seem never to let up. Um, I've also worked on a number of books with other people. Okay. So yeah, those two are definitely the ones I want to talk to you about. And perhaps we can start with talented is overrated. So what really separates world-class performers from everybody else? Um, it's a really interesting topic and perhaps we can just start with, you know, is talent real? Uh, is it innately within us or, or how does it, how does it form? Well, if we talk of talent is one of those words that, uh, most of us use very loosely and yeah. it can mean a lot of different things, but talent in the sense of, uh, an inborn special ability to do a fairly specific thing extremely well. Talent in the sense of we say, oh, you know, he's a natural born tennis player or, you know, she's a natural born leader or a natural born surgeon or something like that. Yeah. Talent in that sense, uh, according to 30 or 40 years of research now, is much less important than we think it is. And some of the researchers would say that talent in that sense does not exist. It's not what makes some people great performers and other people not great performers. So in your research and work, does that kind of inborn talent exist? No, no. I, I, I really have come to believe that in the sense of talent as an inborn specific ability, yeah. uh, 
it just doesn't exist. Yeah. And that is so, and, and I should point it out, this is not my own uh, opinion. This is based on my study of 30 or 40 years of good research, good rigorous academic scientific research into great performance. And most people are just not familiar with the research. It gets published in scholarly journals and most people don't know anything about it. But there's a ton of it. And if you read it, the the findings are pretty consistent. And they would say that talent in that sense is just a, a myth. Yeah, and I certainly have, have come to believe that as well uh, in my research. And, and the work mm. that I'm familiar with is by Anders Ericsson. Um, yes. And I just actually yeah. read his book Peak recently and, and familiar yeah. with some of his other journals, etc. Um, right. And certainly he has a lot of research into that. I, I assume you've sort of used a bit of his work as well. But um, yes. yeah, it seems to be something that's that's not innately with us. But when we look at this, people still might be a bit skeptical and say, but hang on, you know, um, obviously there's certain physical endowments that might make a sports player more um, right. talently available, I guess. Right, <laughs> um, right. So there's those sort of facets as well, isn't there? Yes, uh, uh, yes, and that's perfectly valid. And by the way, I want to just emphasize, uh, you mentioned Anders Ericsson. A number of people, uh, including me, have written books about human performance and so forth. And we all owe a great debt to Anders Ericsson. He is really the, the guy who started this as a serious field of research. And many others have now done research as well. But he is really the foundational figure and still going strong. And I was so glad that he finally wrote his own book, Peak, which you just mentioned, mm. uh, because, uh, you know, he, he he really needed to state this uh, on his own. But, Absolutely. Um, I actually just yeah. on, on saying that I found that, you know, by reading Peak, it sort of ironed out some of the not, not the not the untruths or I guess it's just misinterpretations of his work. Um, that yes. been put out there in other publications, so it really got back to just his 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 real research. Um, yeah, because I've I've you know had different beliefs about talent and and all that sort of stuff uh, through other books that I've read, but by reading yeah. his book, it certainly um, clarified a lot of things uh, for me. Yeah, and, and that's a good point too, because uh, his work has been popularized by a number of people, but in the in the process has been misrepresented mm. and uh, it, it's really important to get it right. Do you think that's, um, sorry, and this is going off track a little bit here, but do yeah. you think that's, that's? I mean, in this day of information, we're just all um, surrounded by it. And certainly I'm one person that does this podcast and I, I read a lot and I interview a lot of great people and then I go and interpret it and, and blurt it out there in my own way. Um, and perhaps I often um, make mistakes or do it incorrectly or, perhaps, you know, put out the wrong interpretation of messages that I hear. Do you think that's, you know, more profoundly evident today with media? And do you think there's sort of consequences to that? Well, I, I do think it's more common than it used to be, in part because uh, there are not just a handful of media outlets like there used to be, you know, the few yeah. newspapers or the few television networks. Yeah. Now there's, a, you know, an infinite number of media outlets. Uh, everybody who wants to write a blog can write a blog, and uh, some of them will be popular. And um, what I've found, and I suspect you have too, is that many people who do those things are more cavalier about accuracy 
than the old-fashioned newspapers and uh, TV networks and magazines and so forth used to be, and most of them, uh, to the extent they still exist, still are. And so there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff gets reported that just isn't accurate or isn't checked. Yeah. And, and people just, it is remarkable the extent to which people simply believe whatever they read online when they shouldn't. Well, I think there's sort of two problems to that, isn't there? I mean, there's one case that the information going out there might be false and incorrect. And the other thing is that a lot of us um, don't really put any of our, what is it, our self-thought into what we're reading or reviewing or consuming. Yes. We just sort of take things for granted. We're sort of, we're, we're creating a society that we're just, um, we're, we're very protected and babied in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. We have to remain independent thinkers Skeptical, um, you know, and reading with an active mind and questioning, very questioning things people. ourselves. Yeah. Questioning things for sure. Yeah. yeah. Hey, can I just, uh, sorry, Jeff, interrupt? There seems to be a bit of a scratching there. Is that if you have a, like a microphone cord or something that might be dangling in front of the speaker? Or um, I, I do have a, a mic. I, let me see if I can make sure it's not touching anything no, no, here. Just, there's just like this, yeah. like there's a, a little mouse in inside our speaker there. Scratching huh. from time to time, so um, I just okay. Let's let me know if it recurs. Sounds good now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Sorry. Um, so getting yeah. back on track. Uh, where were we talking about um, the work of Anders Ericsson and uh, perhaps you can help me with this? Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, just the basic findings. Uh, um, you, you mentioned physical traits and things like that. That's right. Yes. That, mm. that could help someone in sports, and that's absolutely true. Um, and there's no doubt, you know, I mean, the, just to cut to the sort of bottom line here, the the fundamental idea, the fundamental cause of great performance uh, is what the researchers call deliberate practice, which is not exactly what most of us think of as practice. It's a very specifically defined activity, and we may get into that, but it's also important to say that no matter how much deliberate practice you do, uh, if you're five feet tall, you're probably never going to be a champion basketball player. And if you're seven feet tall, you're probably never going to be an Olympic gymnast. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So, you know, it's absolutely true that uh, physical traits, which are uh, in large part inherited, uh, do have an effect on one's success at certain activities. Uh, what's interesting is that it has been difficult for the researchers to identify anything else that's inherited that seems to be significantly associated with um, outstanding success in particular activities. Right. Anything other than physical size, yeah, size and body shape and uh, uh, the, the related issues there. So, so activities or, or talents that require our, our physical body um, yeah. certainly will be impacted in a way, slightly or majorly, um, based on the physical body that we've been uh, given. That's right. That's exactly right. There's no other correlations there to talent. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we, they haven't found inherited factors right. that make a significant difference. Inherited factors. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. 
So talk to us about, um, you know, to improve our talent, because a lot of people out there might be going, oh, yeah, I just don't have the talent. Um, But there is, there is truth to how we can really hone in and improve our talent. Um, So talk to us about some of the methods there. And you started off with deliberate practice before, so perhaps we can start there. Yeah, that really is the uh, the foundation of it all. That uh, you know, if there's a secret, that's what it is. And that sounds kind of simplistic, but it's not because deliberate practice, as I mentioned, is a very specific activity, and it's not what most of us do when we say we're practicing something. If we're practicing the piano or practicing golf or whatever it is. Um, So let me, it's specific, but it's not very complicated. The main elements of deliberate practice are these. One, it is designed especially for you at this moment in your development in whatever it is you're trying to get good at. The reason for that is as you continue with deliberate practice, you will improve. And so the practice is going to have to change as you get better because you'll need to practice different things in different ways. Second, and this is really the heart of it, it is designed always to push you just beyond your current abilities. It doesn't try to push you way beyond your current abilities because then you're just lost. You have no idea what to do. Mm. And it doesn't allow you to operate within your current abilities because then you don't grow. It's always pushing you just beyond what you can do right now. Okay. That's why it that's why it has to be continually redesigned as you make progress. Third, it can be repeated at high volume. Uh, this turns out to be very important. And in fact, when the researchers first figured out that high volume was important, They didn't know what later researchers would discover, which is that high volume of deliberate practice actually causes your physical changes in your brain. Uh, It literally rewires your brain so that these habits become uh, essentially built into you. So high volume is important. And then the fourth thing is you must get lots of feedback, continual feedback. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. And you may think that you can figure this out for yourself, but most of us are not very good at, at providing feedback for ourselves. Right. There's a reason, you know, <laughs> there's a reason even the world's greatest golfers all have teachers. Yeah. They need somebody else to observe them and give them feedback. So mm-hmm. that's what deliberate practice is. There's four elements there that I noted. And the greatest performers in the world, no matter what they do, all engage in that kind of deliberate practice, typically for hours a day, typically for years. So no one is saying this is easy, but we do know what the path to great performance is. Okay. And I think some of the... um some of the insights from that that I've gained. And firstly, it's just, you know, to have a teacher is, is greatly beneficial. And to put it in context, I'm a swimmer. Um, and recently right. I was a bit complacent with my swimming. I was doing t- two swims a week, 2.5K swims. And I was, right. um, you know, enjoying it. It was exercise and I felt good after it, but I wasn't really pushing myself. I was just going in there and, and very habitually doing my swim. And right. once I started to focus on my swim, and put myself uh, a little a designed challenge, I guess, a designed goal right. that wasn't too right. far above my 
you know, as you just mentioned, outside my comfort zone, but it challenged me nonetheless. That really right. saw a great improvement in my swimming. Uh, but there was also a point where I got to where I just I kept I was just putting all this energy into it. I couldn't really do anything further than that, and that's because I didn't have that feedback. And I was trying to give myself feedback, but I, you know, I didn't right. have the ideas. I didn't have the the knowledge. Right. And um, luckily enough, I listened to a podcast with Tim Ferriss where he had an expert mm. swim coach on there talking about, you know, some tips and advice on how to maximize swimming. And then I literally, from a couple of just pointers, I, I took them to the pool with me and um, improved right. my swim once again. Um, so, yeah, critically yeah. important. Uh, but also, you know, yeah. the high volume as well, which is probably right. the question I want to ask around high volume is, you know, I think sometimes we stretch ourselves too thin. We, we try this, we try that, we try that. Uh, whereas these experts that seem to have this innate talent um, really just focus on doing one thing and that's that's what they do all the time. Is that right? There's a lot to that. There is really a lot to that. In fact, when you look at the world's greatest performers, the really, really great performers, it's astounding how intensely they are focused on the one thing they do. Yeah. And whether golf or any other sport, swimming, music, uh, chess, you know, you can think of or, or business or I mean, a million things. The greatest performers typically are focused intensely on that virtually to the exclusion of everything else. And this is something that's very important. Um, we do know the road to world-class great performance. Not everyone will want to go all the way down that road. We all have to make a choice. Yeah. And Good point. any choice is fine as long as it's honest, as long as you're being honest with yourself. Uh, a lot of people realize that the price they pay in lack of personal relationships, in lack of other uh, interests, is just too high, uh, the, the price of becoming a great performer. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. You know, that's fine if that's what you think. But yes, to, to reinforce your point, when you look at the greatest performers, they typically have very little life outside their field. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, following your passions in this show, and, and certainly I've written a lot of articles about it. And I really believe, you know, it's great to have a lot of passions. And I think, you know, you can have a lot of passions. But if you really want to take a passion to that next level, to where it becomes your lifestyle and, and yeah. it earns you your keep, um, yeah. then you may you maybe have to cancel out some of those other things. And certainly for me, this podcast, this The Hidden Wire Project, it um, it is not my money source. It is not my main source of income. But it is my right. passion. It's my hobby. And right. I dedicate a heck of a lot of time to it. And, right. and I don't say this with... Um, uh, a swollen head or anything like that, but I really right. can see the momentum it's having by just dedicating all my time. So for the last three years, I've just really put all my time into this and I can see my, my writing has improved. My interviewing right. style has improved. Um, and that's just come through that constant dedication to this one passion. And it meant, you know, sometimes I have to, you know, forfeit other things. Um, but that's not too important to me because I love, I love this. Um, right. so that's, I think a really a critical point behind deliberate practice and just to make that, you know, as you just said, it's okay not to, you know, want to take it to the next level, want to take it to, you know, the, the highest performer in the world. It's okay to just do it as, as something that brings you joy um, without sacrificing other areas of your life. But you have to honestly make that, that connection. And I think 
um, you probably worded it better than I did, but um, yeah, just wanted to sort of clarify on that point as well. Yeah, yeah, your your example is a great one. So um, interesting stuff. The question I have about deliberate practice and you know high performance, um, and certainly it's a question that I had once I finished reading Peak by Anders Ericsson, is how will peak performance change going forward? Because I sort of feel that we can all develop um, our skill to a higher level. But I also feel there's there's a limit to that based on the resources, based on um, what's available to us. So someone that's um, you know got wealthier parents that might um, have had the foresight to put them into some sort of practice earlier on in life um, will certainly have the advantages compared to someone that's maybe born in India that hasn't had that foresight, that don't have those resources. And that will obviously separate, you know, the, the high performers from, from others, yeah? Absolutely. And this is an important point, which is kind of obvious but still important must be said. Luck has a huge effect. Uh, it could be what you just said, the circumstances of your birth. Um, it could be simply when you were born or where. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it could be teachers that you happened to have early in life. Yeah. Uh, it could be your parents. Uh, one of the things that uh, is very striking when you look at the greatest performers is how many of them happen to have a parent, some, sometimes just one who was in this role, sometimes both, uh, who, a parent who was perfectly situated to help them begin deliberate practice at an incredibly early age. Yeah. Uh, what I write about in my, you know, when you talk, by the way, when you talk to people about this and you say, you know, the secret of great performance is not innate talent, it is deliberate practice. What a lot of people initially say is, that's crazy. And I'll give you two examples, right. Mozart and Tiger Woods. You know, the, how could anybody be as incredibly great as they were from childhood yeah. unless they were born with a gift? Yeah. And, I mean, that's what people think. What they don't realize is that actually Mozart and Tiger Woods were extremely similar in that they were born into a family where their fathers were devoted literally from the kid's birth to making them, in one case, a great musician, and in the other case, a great golfer. Yeah. Each of them had a father who began teaching their little son uh, virtually from birth mm. to do what they did, yep. and who promoted them, not only taught them, but promoted them in the outside world very heavily. Um, so, you know, it just it, what I always tell people is the main reason you'll never be Tiger Woods, is that your father wasn't Earl Woods. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. And that's just luck. Yeah, yeah. So there's certainly, yeah, and I, I, I don't like that word luck personally, I get it, but um, right. I, I'd say, right. you know, fortunate circumstances. Um, but yeah, yeah it's certainly there's, there's, that, there's that element of luck there. And same with like, you know, they, they talk about, you know, having the older sibling that does the same, like uh, Serena Williams and Venus Williams. Yes. You know? Um, that yes. the older person, the the next one down seems to always perform a little bit better because they've had that right. um, older sibling to to learn off. 
Um, yep. So there's elements of that. I also wonder, you know, with technology and the way things, the, 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 the understanding about deliberate practice, the understanding we have when it comes to certain professions um, and the ability to coach people in that regards is, is yeah. continually improving. And, you know, you look at these schools and I don't know the names of the schools. I've heard a few of them, uh, but there's schools that are dedicated. You just put your child in there from an early age and they just, they obviously learn the normal uh, educational procedures, et cetera. But they just um, then spend the rest of their time practicing um, that particular art, yes. and these, these schools are quite expensive, so not available for everyone. So whilst I'm sitting right. here, uh, you know, with my limited circumstances, and I'm not talking about myself, but you know, as a perspective, yeah. um, and there's someone else going out there getting, you know, the the money put behind them to develop their skill. There's obviously going to be a big gap going forward as regards to peak performers when potentially there could be you know, hundreds of other peak performers out there if only they had that, that opportunity. Absolutely right. Uh, because, well, it's just as you say, the ability to, first of all, required to put in the hours and hours of deliberate practice is just not available to everybody. Yeah. Um, and then also having uh, the right teachers, yeah. the best teachers. Yeah makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mozart's father was himself a great teacher of music. The books he wrote on musical teaching uh, were used for decades, centuries in some cases. Mm. Uh, Earl Woods got his son Tiger the best coaches starting at a very early age. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's just not going to happen for everybody. So do you think that will become more paramount You know, in the future, the peak performers... Um... You know, it'll be harder and harder sort of level to, to reach that peak level? Not necessarily. And the, here's the reason why. Um, in many fields, the new there there is new technology that enables people to practice much more, much more effectively than ever before. Now, this isn't true in every field, but it's true in a lot of them. So, yeah, right. One of, one of the most obvious examples is uh, the ages, the declining ages of people who become grandmasters at chess. Yep. You know, uh, Bobby Fischer long ago uh, amazed the world be by becoming uh, a grandmaster just short of his 16th birthday. Um, well, now, uh, you know, there's a gr guy who became a grandmaster at the age of 12. And one reason this is happening is that the chess software has become so good that these people can practice in exactly the way I was describing, virtually nonstop, meaning they can practice against software. Uh, when they get better, the software will make right. it a little harder. Yep. So then they have to, you know, get better. And so that... The, the software does exactly what deliberate practice is supposed to do. It constantly pushes them just beyond their current ability. Well, this software is being developed in all kinds of other areas to give people the effect of the, the benefit of enormous practice, much more than they could ever get in real life, whether it's um, playing other games that can be represented electronically, but also things like managing projects, uh, you know, trading stocks. All kinds of things. There's software being developed for all of them. 
Really, um, yeah, interesting point that. So it's really, you know, the, the advanced technologies and uh, understandings that we have sort of help fast track our learning ability. Yes, exactly uh, right. And as you said, you know, give us that, that opportunity to really focus on the deliberate practice more often, more consistently um, with an increasing level of challenge. Right. And, and, and there's no limit to it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm always talking to great performers about these things. I was talking to Gary Kasparov, the guy who was the world chess champion for 20 years. Yeah. He, he says that the chess software that you get for free on your phone today is more powerful than the deep blue computer that beat him in 1997. <laughs> wow. That's crazy, isn't it? So it that's is. probably a good segue to your new book as well, and I certainly want to dedicate a little bit of time to it. Yes. Um, it's called Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will. Um, so what is, the, what is the general theme of the book, Jeff? Uh, the basic idea is that as technology advances, yeah. more and more work is being taken over by, techno by technology, by computers or robots or whatever you want to call it. And this has been happening forever, but it, it is now happening so quickly and so dramatically that it has a lot of people really, really worried um, because the technology is taking over not just repetitive jobs, um, you know, old assembly line jobs and so forth as it used to. It's taking over very high value work. Um, it's taking work away from lawyers. It's yeah. taking work away from doctors. And so the question is... It's quite scary, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. It's, it's astounding. I mean, there, there are laws, I mean, here in the U.S., uh, uh, law firms are merging because they are shrinking. Law schools are sh shutting down because they don't have enough students. Uh, it's beyond belief. Because software can do a lot of the work, not all of it, but a lot of the work that lawyers used to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so as this process continues, um, the question arises, okay, how are we poor humans going to be economically value, valuable. We, you know, we, we can probably still find work, but will it be very badly paid work because machines can do it just as well? Or is it going to be work that we can still make a good living at and have a rising standard of living because we do it better than machines? Mm. That's, the, that's the, the fundamental question of the book. What can we do that's going to remain valuable even as technology gets better and smarter. And the answer that I found was what will make us valuable is the skills of deep human interaction, the skills of managing relationships between human beings, the, the, the deepest things that connect us as humans, those are going to remain economically valuable and we're already seeing companies saying that saying that these are the skills they need uh and that's so that's that's what the book is all about so skills yeah deep yeah human fundamental skills of interaction and relationships that's exactly right that. and mm. that's exactly right and, <laughs> and you know you can talk about them in a lot of ways but yeah. i put them into three categories one empathy, which is the foundation of everything else. 
that word has become very popular uh, um, since I wrote the book, but uh, it is the foundation of everything else. And empathy is not just feeling someone else's pain, although it is that. It is the ability to discern what another person is feeling and thinking, no matter what it is, and then to respond in some appropriate way. Um, that's, that's the foundation. And then the second one is creative problem solving together. Our problems today are too hard for us to solve all by ourselves. Nobody can do it alone sitting in a room. We do all this stuff in teams. And it turns out, there's fascinating research on this, it turns out that what makes teams effective is not the IQ of the smartest person on the team, that has no effect at all, not the cohesion or satisfaction or motivation of the team. Yeah. It's the social sensitivity, it's the empathy of the team members. And we could go into why that's the case, but it is absolutely the case. And then the third category, of uh, deep human skills might surprise some people, but it's storytelling. And actually this has become far more popular as a topic in the last year or so. Um, look, you know, we have to make decisions based on data, but if you want to change people's minds, you know, if you want to inspire people to action, don't show them data, tell them a story. Yeah. And that is an ability that most of our organizations do not value very highly. But that that's going to be one of the things that is really valuable. Yeah, I often wonder about stories. I don't think I'm an excellent storyteller at all, but I certainly hear people talk and, and I can tell the ones that resonate with me more are really good at telling stories. Yeah. Um, and I wonder I wonder why it's, it's a hard thing to, to sort of develop because it, it does seem to be lacking. Uh, in society and perhaps there's a reason behind vulnerability there um, that storytelling is very exposing and risky and uncertain yeah I, I mean I think you're right it, it has it, uh, historically it has not been the way to get ahead uh, in an organization hmm. but you know if then you go back even further in history it was the foundation of communication everybody was a good storyteller that's how we conveyed things and in fact, uh, I mean, this is in the book, I won't go into detail, but there is incredible research that says we are, as human beings, hardwired to put every, to understand our lives, to understand reality in the form of stories. We, we, we automatically, naturally put everything we hear into the form of a story, even if it's presented that way or not. Yeah. Um, because that's how we understand the world. We understand it as a series of stories. We, we are really, there is a structure to, to a story, and we are, we are just built to respond to that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the work of Yuval Noah Harari, but he talks about it in his books, Sapiens and Homo Deus. Oh, um, sure. Uh, you know, he talks about storytelling, and, and really a couple of the points that you just mentioned, you know, that we are uh, where we are as the you know the main the the prime species of the world because of our yeah. ability to uh, work collaboratively collaboratively together. I can't even say the word. Yeah. Um, and and you know tell stories and and that's really yeah. um, why why we've come a long way. Yeah, so, uh, I, I, it's absolutely right. 
So it, it makes a lot of sense why these why these three things uh, will be important and the reasons why we will remain value going forward in the future. Um, I think you, you've got a couple of fantastic books here, and I want to just encourage the audience to you know check out the links there and, and perhaps pick up the copies as well uh, to have a read of them because they sound just insightful and fascinating. And I, I like books like these because they really challenge our perspectives and the way we think. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, in regards to humans are underrated and how we'll how we will remain valuable where do you see the future of technology and how humans will will be able to earn a living and and remain valuable obviously there's those points you mentioned but um if if a lot of machines etc are taking our jobs what will humans be doing and, and will we be getting paid for it i mean yeah. I, th- I think technology is really there to help us you know, relax a little bit more. I spoke with a, a gentleman recently yeah. and he talks about the 15 hour work week, you know, technology. I mean, that's right. the reason why we have this great stuff so we can work less and do more of the things that love we love and get us excited and really enjoy this life. Yet it seems uh, it's doing the reverse to our lifestyles. We're doing less of what we enjoy and uh, more overwhelmed, right. chaotic and um, uh, unhealthy for it. Um, right. So yeah, I just like your perspective on it all and, and where you think it's taken us. Yeah, it is it is a great question, and it is increasingly the question. I mean, it is a big topic of conversation worldwide now. I mean, here are a few things just to keep in mind. First of all, technology overall has been an unbelievable boon to humanity. Yeah. Uh, when you think of how people lived from the dawn of time up until two or three hundred years ago, you know, it was almost unchanged over that time. And everybody was poor and life expectancies were low. If you look at the improvement in human well-being overall, the rise of living standards, the extension of lives, uh, the improvements in health, uh, it's simply staggering, nothing like it in history. And it's because of technology. So, you know, it is a great, great thing. Let, just to be clear, I'm a big fan of technology. Yeah. It has been wonderful for us. Yeah. Uh, what's new is that for the first time in history, uh, a significant number of informed people, economists, technologists, well-informed business people and so forth, now are at least questioning whether advancing technology will continue to increase employment and raise living standards because maybe it's eliminating jobs faster than it's creating new ones. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether we're going to have a different future where technology actually puts millions and millions of people out of work and they have to be sustained through what people are increasingly talking about, the universal basic income, some kind of subsidy that goes to everybody from the government. Yeah. But I would, I would just emphasize this point that we should not forget. People have been worrying about this same question since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And the reason is we can always identify very precisely the jobs that are being eliminated. You can see them. You can see them going away. You know exactly what they are. We can never imagine the new jobs that will be created as a result of advancing technology. Because we can't imagine them, we we don't expect them. We have no reason to think that they're coming because we have we don't know what they'll be. Yeah. 
Uh, and yet, they arrive. But and the question so, is, if they do arrive, will there be enough? Because right, yeah. and this is all right, and that and that is the question. And so, all I want to remind, and I and I repeat, I don't know the answer. Yeah. I wish I could tell you I was a hundred percent confident. I'm not. But we must remember that this has always been the case. We've never known for sure in advance what the new jobs would be or whether they would be enough of them or whether they would pay well enough. Yeah. But it has, on the whole, it has worked out extremely well. And let's just remember, it could all work out that way yet again. Uh, what we've got to keep our eye out for is the signals that say either yes it is or no it's not yeah and i think i mean there's a couple of connections that i can make there one i mean going you know we we shouldn't lose hope based on on what you just said and and you know even with deliberate practice i was sort of talking a little bit negatively about you know our circumstances and how that relates to how our ability to reach a peak level of performance um and but we shouldn't um use that to disregard our actions and and in a positive sense you know move forward to personal right. progression the same with the future of, of society as a whole i think we need to you know remain focused on those three points you talked about empathy um uh, collaborative yeah. problem solving and storytelling um right. and certainly if we can focus on them perhaps we can move towards and overcome it because humans seem to be very resilient um just on that last last point i just want to ask a question is storytelling do you think it's a dying art do you think we've lost our story overall as a, as a human uh as a society i mean because of the separation that still exists among the world? And do you think there's going to be some sort of turmoil before we really unite and gather a consistent story? Because at the moment, there seems to be just chaos and confusion about what is that story? Yeah, well, that's for sure. That That's for sure. And I I, I wish I could make some kind of uh, uh, optimistic forecast about what will happen as far as cooperation among societies and peoples and so forth is concerned. But I don't think that we have lost our ability to tell stories or our understanding of stories. I think it's inside every one of us uh, and we can all get better at it, but we are all just primed and ready to get better at it. And what we need, and I mean, look, we consume stories more voraciously than ever in the form of film and video entertainment and so forth. Um, What we need is a sort of broader recognition that this is valuable, that our ability to tell stories is not just for entertainment. It is very serious. It accomplishes huge things. And if we value it more highly, then I think we'll be a lot better off. Yeah, good point. Mate, excellent stuff. Uh, Again, guys, check it all out, thehiddenwire.com. I'll stick the links to his books in the show notes so you can check out Jeff's books and uh, pick up copies using the links. does help support the show. Jeff, I've got a few questions that I ask all guests, just a couple of quick rapid-fire questions. Uh, yes. So I'll start with the first one, which is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Uh, I have a morning routine that I do think is important. Yeah. Uh, I get up, and before anything else, before breakfast, I run five miles, six days a week. Yeah. Uh, then I have a big breakfast, which is generally based on oats, and uh, fruit and some tea. And it not only makes me feel great for the rest of the day, it gets the brain going first thing in the morning. I'm I'm a great believer in it. Yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, do you have a specific diet? Uh, not totally specific. I should say I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm pretty close. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't eat a lot of uh, meat or anything like it. It's it's mostly vegetarian, but I, I, I eat very healthy. You know, uh, yeah. no grains except whole grains. Lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. Not very much fat. Regular meals at regular times um, makes a big difference. Absolutely. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I think the advice I would give my 20-year-old self is listen to the inner voice more. Um, When I was 20, I don't think I was very good at that. The inner voice is always there. I think back then I was too ready to tell the inner voice to shut up. And I shouldn't have. I should have been much more sensitive to it. And the other thing we actually touched on earlier, which is I would have told myself to be willing to try more new things. Don't be afraid that trying something new is going to destroy my life because it's not. I have much more freedom than I thought to try new things. Very cool. Good, really good advice. What adv- uh, what is your meaning of success? You know, it's really just satisfying myself that I'm doing some good in the world. I am constantly questioning myself, challenging myself as to whether I am or not. And success just means some confidence, satisfying myself that I am. Yeah, good stuff. What's your number one productivity advice? Uh, (laughs) It's to focus. We talked about that earlier also. Um, It's to to choose not to do various things that you might like to do, but you choose not to do them so that you could do the certain few things that you really, really would like to do. And it's hard to do that. Uh, it's hard, and I always, I am always dissatisfied with myself. But it is my my number one productivity advice. It's probably becoming harder and harder in this world of technology too, with all the distractions. I think that's uh, for sure. That. Yeah. Yes. But really, really, really profound advice. Advice. Um, someone looking to make some change in their life. What What advice would you give them? Um, one, one bit of advice. Yeah, probably to get the perspective of others. Um, when we want change in our advice, we, in our lives, we may be hesitant even to talk about it with others. Um, and my thought is, please talk to them, get somebody else's perspective. You can't, you can't do this alone. Yeah. Very good. Uh, And certainly something I'm quite happy to do. And I think it it does provide a lot of benefits. What is your favorite food? (laughs) <laughs> that that's so hard. That's too hard <laughs> because I like I love all kinds of food. But I'll give you an, an answer that you probably have never heard before: steel cut oats. Steel okay. cut oats, right? Oh, yeah, it's very specific. Uh, <laughs> very specific, but you know, but I, I mean, I, I love breakfast. As I said, my breakfast is usually oat-based, one way or another. And I got to tell you, I look forward to it every day, every day. You know, so I'm the same. I'm the same. Is that it, right? It seems so it's boring a... to a lot. Of, I don't eat oats. I have a Japanese breakfast, which is rice oh. topped with Japanese natto miso soup, and some pickled vegetables on the side. Wow, um, 
so just like you, but yeah, it's, it's something that excites me every day. Um, I, I'm not as specific as having steel cut something rather than <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's some they're called Irish Oats. Irish Oats. Same thing. Well, I'll have to Same check thing. it out. And do you have a favorite leisure activity? I, I have a million of them, but I would say hiking. Hiking ideally in mountains. I love that. I love it. And do you have a favorite book you'd like to recommend or one you've read recently? Uh, not well. Uh, actually, what, if I had to say my favorite book, I would say I'm very glad that you can now get the Iliad and the Odyssey packaged in one book, because then I'd say that's my favorite book. So you know, here the, here, here are books that are uh, 2,700 years old, but I reread them. They're, look, the everything that is in Western literature uh, can be found beginning in the Iliad and. Uh, it's the the wisdom and so forth in that is endless. Who are the books by? Both by Homer, in the, you know, Greek uh, from the wrote them around the, the seven hundred or so uh, BC, uh-huh. um, and uh, uh, they will you know, and here they are, still in print, still studied in school, still. I've never um, never come across them, so that's going on well, the list. Thank you. Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, guys, check Two that books. out at thehiddenwide.com. I'll stick it under the links so you can uh, use the links there to grab the books, help support the show. Um, and I'll stick Jeff's books there as well so you can pick up those uh, using those links as well if you wish. Jeff, do you have a favorite quote? I have too many favorite quotes, but I'll mention one. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's very simple. It says, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Okay. A handful with quietness. And uh, that's something that I find more valuable with every passing year. Yeah. Wow. I like it. Something to uh, reflect on and think on, guys. That's awesome. And do you believe we have a why? I do believe we have a why and that we spend most of our lives finding it. And what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Um, it means fulfillment. I mean, you know, what gives you fulfillment in life? Uh, it's acknowledging your passion, finding it, and pursuing it, and and having a purpose. People go crazy when they don't feel that they have a purpose. Yeah. They can accomplish anything when they feel that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And for you personally, this is a question that I've sort of added, uh, a new question. Yeah. What is yeah. the underlying motivation behind everything you do? What is, yeah. what is the fundamental reason why you do what you do every day? You know, that's a really hard question. And it... It does come from some deep inner drive that I don't feel that I fully identify, to tell you the truth. Um, To some extent, I am always trying to understand and then to explain. All the writing I've done, all the speeches I give, it's all trying to understand something important and then explain it to others. 
Yeah. And uh, I, as I look back over my life, that has been driving me for the whole thing. And, and what, is that, what does that leave you with? How does that make you feel? Like, what is, what is that? That it, it leaves me with feeling that I've done some use, that I've been of some use, that I've done some good, and, and that's all. That I've helped some people. So you know. what is what is beyond that? But like, what is that that you've helped some people that makes you feel good? What why does that make you feel good? What is what is it there? It, it, I you know I don't know that I can go beyond it uh, except that I, one thing I've observed is that you know as you look at people through history around the world trying to find meaning in life you know trying to answer the biggest question of all why are we here what are you know what are we doing here what is the meaning of our life. Many, many of them come back to just help being of help to other people. I mean, here we all are on this planet, you know, and we'll come and we'll go. But if we can help other people while we're here, that's that's the meaning that so many people come back to. And it's what I come back to. Yeah, well, cool. I'm glad I've had this new question because it's um, it is deep. But um, I think we get a lot of value out of it in sharing so thank you for sharing today jeff thank you for coming on the show i've used up the full hour pretty much today so i appreciate your time um want to encourage people to connect with you how's how's the best way to connect uh the best way to connect with me is through my website which is jeffcolvin.com but we of course we must spell the jeff because it's g-e-o-f-f yeah colvin c-o-l-v-i-n jeffcolvin.com I'll stick that in the show notes, guys. Check it out. Uh, connect with Jeff. Thank him for coming on the show. Pick up his books if you're interested. And, um, yeah, let me know what you think about our conversation. Both of us, what you think about our conversation today. I think it's been awesome, Jeff. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm really glad you asked me. Thanks, guys. Check it all out at thehiddenwire.com, episode 501 with Jeff Cole. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. There you have it, guys, my interview with Jeff Colvin. What did you think? I would love to hear your thoughts. You can jump on to thehiddenwire.com and leave your comments, any thoughts, questions that you might have in the comments fields there, episode 501, Jeff Colvin. I thought it was an amazing conversation, really inspiring, lots of great insight, and on two very important topics that are relevant to us all. And one is on, you know, the fact that talent isn't innately within us. We can improve our performance in whatever passions or fields that we desire to Uh, focus on and and pursue in life and that all really comes down to the process and harnessing the process of deliberate practice I think a really important uh, really important uh, conversation there we also talked about obviously humans um, the human society going forward with the increased advancement of technology you know how can we remain valuable something that we need to think about and discuss uh, both on the personal level and on the collective level as well so really insightful conversation guys I'd love to hear your thoughts again jump onto thehiddenwire.com leave your thoughts in the comments there at episode 501 with Jeff Colvin if you'd like to do me a favour you can leave me a review on iTunes that'd be great you can also share this episode with your family friends your loved ones that'd be huge you use the links in the show notes to Amazon to purchase the books, etc. That helps support the show. And other than that, just connect with me, guys. Let me know what you think about The Hidden Wire. Let me know your feedback, your questions, your suggestions for the show. Um, I always love to connect. So that'd be great. Other than that, guys, you know what to do. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Wire. My name is Lee Martin. Signing out.